First Samuel chapter 4, the first part of the verse 11, and the ark of God was taken. The ark of God was taken. Whenever the Lord first appeared to Samuel, he told him, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. Notice how that emphasizes one thing. I will do a thing in Israel. Now God does many things in Israel. He did many things in this defeat of the Israelites by the hand of the Philistines. But there is this day one thing in particular that is ringing, echoing in the ears of the people, this tingling, this vibrating, this hearing again of the same awful fact. The ark of God is taken. And that's the thing that tingles and vibrates in the ear. It vibrates, as we shall see, Five times in this chapter, the ark of God is taken. And so our text this morning tells us of the greatest humiliation that Israel could have suffered. We might reverently even say it was the Lord's humiliation. The ark of God was taken. Just think about that. It is the highest and the greatest symbol to all Israel of the divine power and the divine glory. All that Israel holds dear, God's ark. The ark of Jehovah, as it is called. The ark of the Jehovah of hosts. The ark of the divine covenant. The ark that contained the sacred law of God, the Ten Commandments on the two tables, written with the finger of God, the ark that had the glory dwelling between the cherubim, that ark was taken. Yes, taken. The symbol of his power and presence. Taken. And think who took it? The Philistines. The enemies of God, the enemies of truth, the enemies of God's people, the unclean, the uncircumcised, the unholy and the impure. The seed of the serpent. The enemies of all truth and righteousness. They took it. And throughout the rest of this chapter, the same awful, unthinkable fact is repeated. The ark of God is taken. You have it there in verse 11, our text, but also in verse 17, at the end, the ark of God is taken. And notice, it is the last word of the witness, this Benjaminite, as he comes to report the tale of what has happened, the last word that he utters the ark of God is taken. It's the climax of it all. The saddest part of it all. And Phineas' wife 
heard of it and went into labor when she heard of it. Because we read there in verse 19, his daughter-in-law Phineas' wife was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard that the ark of God was taken, she bowed herself in travail. And then it's repeated twice in verses 21 and 22 as she names her child, explaining the name of her child. Verse 21, the glorious departed from Israel because the ark of God is taken. And verse 22, and she said, the glorious departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. Do you see how it's repeated? It's emphasized. The chapter closes on that note. The ark of God is taken and it continues into the next chapter. Chapter 5, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer. And then verse 2, when the Philistines took the ark of God. So you have this constant seven times, this vibration, this tingling in the ears of this Holy Scripture. As we hear it read, the ark of God is taken. And that ark is called the glory. The divine glory the Shekinah glory taken. And with the taking of it, the glory is gone. And the word departed, the glory is departed, is a term that makes us think of exile. The glory is going into exile. The word depart has a sense of shame and humiliation as being led away into exile. The ark was covered, no doubt, as the priests carried it into battle, but I'm sure that was changed as the Philistines uncovered it and as they brought it into the exile and as they put it into the house of Dagon, uncovered, exposed, utterly humiliated. The ark of God was taken. And that's the way it was taken in a sense of total Humiliation. And that humiliation is described at the start of chapter 5. Into the very house of Dagon. But that is not the whole description of the story. That's only the manward description. That's only the description on the horizontal. It was taken. The Philistines took it. That's the manward. The earthward. The earthly story of the ark but that's not the only part of the story there's a story on the vertical as well a story from the divine side a story in which God has a hand and there is another verb that occurs in the story you don't find it in Samuel but you find it in the Psalter in Psalm 78 where the psalmist tells us in verse 60, speaking of this time, he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh. This is the vertical description of it all now. Not the horizontal. This is the theological description of it now, in this Psalter, given by the prophet. Verse 60, he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which he placed among men, and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. And that's a reference to the ark. God's strength, the symbol of his power, 
that plagued Egypt and brought Israel out with a mighty hand, he delivered that strength into exile, into captivity, into the Philistine bondage. He delivered it. Yes, on the earthly plane it was taken, but in the heavenly explanation, God delivered it over. God handed it over to the Philistines. It was delivered by God. He gave his glory into the hands of the enemy. And as you know, the ark is a symbol and type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is especially appropriate that we come to this section today as we remember our Lord's death and keep the supper on this, our communion day. And so it's a very fitting portion of scripture because the ark of God is a symbol of Christ. The lid of it is called the mercy seat and he is the mercy seat. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the one who reconciles us to God. The blood on the mercy seat pictures him in his atoning work for us. God says, I will meet with you there. I will meet with you there at the mercy seat. And he meets with us in Jesus Christ. We meet in the person and the work of the mediator, Jesus Christ. He is pictured by the mercy seat. He is pictured by the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is made of two materials, the wood and the gold. Speaking of the two natures of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, he has a creature nature. He is betrayed by the wood. He is the branch of the Lord. He is the offspring of David. He is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, true man, and yet he has the eternal glory, the glory of the gold that never tarnishes, the glory of the divine Godhead, the glory of God himself. He is God incarnate. He is the word made flesh. He is the Lord who came and tabernacled among us, the God-man, symbolized by this ark, of glory. He has the glory with the Father, and yet he came into the world. The glory who is himself called the Lord of glory. He is the Sekinah. You remember how Paul said, None of the princes of this world knew him. Had they known him, they would not have crucified him, the Lord of glory. The glory was veiled. The glory was not seen by visible eye. And so they crucified him. And we see him in the word, Paul says in another place. We behold in the glass of the word the glory of the Lord Jesus. And we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. So, so he is the glory of the Lord that we see. The glory incarnate. The glory come down for us. To reveal to us the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was the glory who was mighty in word and deed. We beheld his glory. We saw his glory in his works, the apostle says. Mighty works, glorious works, powerful works. He redeemed his people with a mighty hand. Just like this Ark of the Covenant did. When it brought Israel out of the wilderness. When it brought them through the wilderness. And whenever it protected them and the Shekinah glory hedged them, 
in all their journeys, bringing them into the land of promise. The cherubim that covers the mercy seat and surrounds them, the Lord Jesus Christ had the angels in his life, the angels surrounding him. He was followed by angels. Angels waited on him. Angels ministered to him in his humanity. Angels studied him. They still study him. They still observe him. And they worship him. The cherubim worship the glory. And the angels desire to look into these things. And of course within him. He has the law of God. Because he kept the law of God. Thy law is in my heart. He said. I delight to do thy will. Thy will is my meat and drink. And he's the righteous one. And he hasn't gone back from any of the commandments of God's lips. And he's esteemed all the commandments more obvious than his necessary food. He went without food on occasions, but he never went without keeping the commandments of God. And so this ark then is a pattern of him, who is the true glory. But the ark is a shadow, you know. It's just a pattern. It's just a type. It was made according to the pattern showed on to Moses. But that implies there is a greater reality. There's something more. And the more is Jesus Christ. He is the last ark. He is the true ark that brings us into the true exodus and into the true land, the heavenly and the eternal glory. And what I'm saying is, if this is a type of Christ, it pictures the humiliation of Christ. Because these verbs were in his life. He was taken. That's what I want you to see this morning. The ark of God was taken. The son of God, the glory of God, was taken. The Bible is saying this again and again when we read the story of Jesus they came, you remember that night at Gethsemane, they came and they laid hands on Jesus and took him. Matthew says they took him. And the other gospel writers say the same. And they brought Jesus to Pilate. And the Bible says Pilate took him. Yes, Pilate took him. Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And then Pilate, he delivered him unto the Roman soldiers. And they took him. The same verb keeps being repeated. Jesus is the taken one. They're always taking him. Taking him deeper into the humiliation. Taking him to the cross. Taking him to crucify him. Uh, and then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments. They, they uncovered him. They took the covering. They exposed him more. They brought him into the greater and the deeper humiliation. And as always this verb took that is used by the Holy Spirit as if to recall the ark of God taken. Taken by Philistine hands. Taken. Uncovered. Humiliated. Brought down to the very house of Dagon itself. And that's Jesus Brought into the house of death. Taken. Even to the tomb. Taken. 
I think there was some surprise when the Lord was taken. I think they were surprised that they took him so easily. After all, this mighty Lord Jesus was mighty in power indeed. He could raise the dead. Not so long ago he had raised Lazarus. He made people who had been born blind to see. He was mighty in word and deed. And they must have thought that it wouldn't be easy to take him. Which is why they came at night. And which is why they brought a great multitude. And which is why that great multitude came with arms and rods and staffs and weapons. To take him. They thought it would have been hard. And indeed it would have been hard. Except for the divine will. And how hard it was to be is illustrated because at first Jesus said, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, I am he. And they fell away backwards. It's not going to be easy to take him. The Lord's just reminding of that. You're not really taking me. I'm giving myself to thee. So they fell away backwards. But then they got the strength again and the courage again. And they took him. And after that it was very easy to take him. And they must have been surprised. I think Judas was surprised. I don't think Judas thought he would have been taken at all. And when he saw that he was taken, he went and hung himself. He didn't expect that. He expected a mighty power and a great escape. Mighty indeed in word. But he didn't escape. He allowed himself to be taken. And he was taken. And you know, these Philistines, they were surprised too. Oh, this is the God who slew the Egyptians. This is the mighty God of Israel who sent the plagues on Egypt that we know amongst our brothers there. They had to be strengthened and encouraged to be brave to take this ark of God. And they were utterly surprised. It was so easy. And they took it. They were terrified and shocked. But still they took it. The real reason is not that it's easy to take. Not that Jesus was easy to take. Uh, and they had no power at all except it was granted to them from heaven. The fact that he was taken was he was delivered. That's what made it easy. He was delivered. His father delivered him. He that spared not his own son but delivered him up for us. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? He delivered up his dearest. He delivered up his best. That's why he was taken. He delivered his strength into the hands of his enemies. He gave his glory over to the wicked. And they took it. The glory. And they humiliated the glory. And Peter, on the mighty day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down and unfilled the new preacher as never before, Peter marvelously brings both these verbs together in that spirit-filled sermon that awakened thousands of Jews. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God ye have taken and by wicked hands yes, Wicked hands, you have crucified and slain. And here it is in picture form. These wicked hands, these unclean hands of these Philistines, 
they take him who was delivered over to them in this ark of God and they take it into the house of their idol Dagon himself. And so the ark voluntarily goes. That's the explanation. The ark gives itself as Jesus gave himself. No man takes my life from me. I give it. I lay it down. This commandment I had been delivered unto me by my father. I power to lay it down. I have power to take it up. And there can be no salvation for Israel. There can be no deliverance for sinners. Except in the humiliation of the Lord of glory. And so it is for our sex congregation who are poor and shameful sinners. That the rich and glorious son of God became poor. Unveiled his glory. And suffered this humiliation. It was for our sakes. It was ultimately for the victory. For the defeat of Dagon. And the ultimate defeat of the Philistines. By the path of humiliation. You see the Jews stumble at the cross don't they? They stumble at the humiliation. They say God would not let his Messiah go through that. And crucifixion is the greatest form of humiliation. And God would not allow that to happen to his son. To his Messiah. To his Christ. But it was most necessary. The humiliation of the son of God. This shameful death. You remember the word glory occurs in Hannah's psalm that we spent so much time in and we'll come back to again and again because you meet it throughout this whole book of Samuel again and again. She spoke of the glory. Remember how she said he raiseth up the poor out of the dust. He lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to make them inherit. The throne of glory. This throne of glory that is taken into exile. He, he lifts us up. He raises us up to inherit the throne of glory. To inherit the divine presence. To inherit the sight of the glory of God. To dwell with the glory of God. He lifts us up from the dust, from the dunghill, to the very glory But the only way to be lifted up to that glory is for that glory itself to be brought low and to come down and to come down to the dust and to come down to the dunghill and to come down to the utter humiliation of the cross. No lifting up to glory for us sinners except in the bringing down of the glory in the utter humiliation of the sacrifice of Calvary. The humiliation is necessary For our glorification. And it's all set forth here. In picture form. And we shall inherit the glory. Remember how we saw in the book of the Revelation. There's no night there. There's no candle there. They don't need the light of the sun. Because they have the glory of God. And they live and reign with him forever and ever. They've inherited the glory. You remember how Paul prayed. Oh I pray for you Ephesians. 
I pray that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. I pray that you might see, that you might know, that you might have the assurance of the riches of the glory of his inheritance. What glory we have in the Lord. But not without the humiliation of that Lord for us. In the dunghill and in the dust where he set his holy feet. To walk amongst for us. So the glory does not come to us. Unless the divine glory goes into exile where we are. Goes into the far country where we are. No glory without an exile. No glory without an exodus. No glory without the suffering and the humiliation of the Lord of glory himself. And so the humiliation is most necessary. And that's what this chapter and chapter 5 teaches us in the word of God. And so he was in the form of God. And he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, as indeed it was not, for he was equal with God and had all the divine glory. But he made himself of no reputation, He became in the fashion of a man. And he humbled himself. Yes, equal with God, but he humbled himself. And became obedient unto death. Even the death of the cross. Even into the very house of Dagon itself. And so the ark is laid in the house of Dagon. The humiliation looks complete. It looks like Dagon has won the day. It looks like the Philistine God has had the victory. And the the ark no doubt is beside Dagon, but lower than Dagon, and Dagon is over it, looking down on it, because Dagon is Lord of all, he's Lord of death, he's Lord of darkness, and he overlooks all, and he looks down on the dead, the defeated, the disgraced ark of the covenant. And Dagon thinks he has won the day. And God's people think it too. You remember how they said concerning the crucified one when he was laid in the tomb? We thought it had been him who had redeemed Israel. They don't have much faith there, do they? We thought it would have been him, the mighty Christ, who had brought us into the great redemption. But there he lies in the tomb. There he lies under the power of death. Ashdod is a place of power, as the word implies. A fortress. And the inner temple is secure. Dagon's temple in the deepest and the safest place in the synodale of Ashdod. And there the ark lies. And our Christ crucified, dead and buried. There he lies. Under the power of death, so it seems. The humiliation looks complete and absolute and final. Ah, but Dagon got a great surprise. As did Satan. Because the mighty ark revived and arose again and dealt with Satan and with Dagon. The story is not over. Dagon is destroyed in the humiliation and through the humiliation of the ark. The ark goes forth to conquer. 
And our text shows Jews ought not to stumble at Christ's crucifixion. They ought not to take his being taken and delivered as the whole story. There is a story of the resurrection, which they don't believe, sadly. But the ark of God rose again. Where does Psalm 78 put it? You know, he handed over his strength, he handed over his glory into the enemy's hand. But that's not the end of the story. That's not where we finish our singing of Psalm 78. Bless God. The story continues. Then the Lord awaked. Then the Lord awaked as one out of sleep. A resurrection. He rises from the sleep. He rises from the dead. He awaked as one asleep like, like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine. That's a powerful metaphor for God. A drunken man rising, shouting, ready to commit chaos. And here, here's this man arises. The art arises out of sleep. He awaked. The Lord awaked. And he smote his enemies in the hinder parts. He smote them in their hinder parts in chapter 5. He put them to a perpetual reproach. He humiliated them. Oh, I tell you, the resurrection morning the Lord awaked. He awaked from the dead. And the kingdom of sin has never got over the everlasting reproach of it yet. And it never shall. He'll smite all his enemies in their hinder parts. And they'll all fly from him. And he'll be the conqueror and the overcomer and the defeater of all the enemies of righteousness and truth. The Lord awaked that day from the tomb. And what a mighty awakening was, and he's never slept since. He's alive forevermore and has the keys of death. Dagon's house is destroyed. Yes, Christ awake, Christ arose, Christ is risen, and has destroyed him that has the power of death. And he comes forth, and he destroys principalities and powers, and he makes a show of them openly. He destroys the God of this world, he bruises Satan's head, and he sets, bless God, his prisoners, Satan's prisoners. He sets us all free. The Lord of glory. And his humiliation for us sinners. And now he's returned to the place of power and glory at God's right hand. As a poet put it, Jesus in his heavenly glory sits with God upon the throne. Now no more to be forsaken his humiliation gone. Nevermore shall God, Jehovah, smite the shepherd with the sword. Ne'er again shall cruel sinners set at naught our glorious Lord. It's finished. Never again shall Christ be in the temple of Dagon. Never again shall Christ be in the tomb. Never again on the bier. No, he lives. Bless God, he lives. On the power of an endless life. And let's come to his table this morning. In humble thanksgiving. 
Not to repeat the humiliation. No. Not to repeat the humiliation. Not to offer the sacrifice of the cross. But to participate in its victory. To feast in its light. To thank Christ for his love for us. For his allowing himself to be taken and cruelly and wickedly handled for us. The cost of our salvation. The price paid in the humiliation of his broken body and shed blood. The cost of our deliverance from Satan's kingdom of darkness. Let us come to it then. In obedience to his command. In thankfulness to his love. In appreciation of his grace. And let us come to be greater comforted. And more deeply assured. Of the glory that we have. In our risen Lord. Let us pray.